Welcome to another edition of the Bear Market Brief Podcast. I'm your host, Aaron. Our focus this episode is on the term Now, if you don't happen to speak Russian, don't worry. That means state Duma elections, the Duma being Russia's parliament. Russia's latest elections are set to conclude on September 19th. And that being the case, we wanted to provide some context. Joining us this edition is Felix Leith, a correspondent at the Moscow Times. We discussed the broader meaning of the elections, who is involved, and what we're expecting to see. If you're curious about Russian politics, this is an episode for you. So let's dive in. Welcome to the podcast. Great to have you today. It's great to be here. Thanks, Anne. So we've got a pretty interesting, uh, pertinent subject matter uh, as far as Russia is concerned today. But before we get into the weeds here, just wanted you to quickly introduce yourself to the listeners. Uh, yeah, so uh, I'm Felix, uh, Felix Light. I'm uh, a journalist at the Moscow Times, which is uh, certainly these days the only kind of uh, independent English language uh, news source based in Russia. And obviously in this last sort of these few last few months and sort of uh, weeks, I've been mostly covering the uh, Duma elections on uh, September the 19th. And sort of that's been my focus and more generally sort of Russian politics uh, inside and outside of election season. Fantastic. Well, sounds like you're the right person to talk to today. So we have these elections coming up. Let's start kind of at a top level, 30,000 feet looking down. What do these elections mean for Russia's political system, politics broadly? What's at stake here? Yeah, so it's it's a good question, and it's a one that probably I I certainly uh, sometimes uh, overlook. But I certainly think that basically. Uh, when we talk about sort of Russian elections, we obviously think that it's it's a sham that sort of Russia has this sort of authoritarian politics, which is not untrue. But, um, you know, it's important to remember that sort of Russia is not like a sort of a purpose built authoritarian state. You know, it's a formerly a democracy that operates in practice on authoritarian lines and its elections are managed and choreographed and sort of uh, coordinated, certainly, but they're not entirely irrelevant and they're not sort of devoid of content. Uh, there is electoral comp- uh, competition, uh, albeit from a sort of a very truncated range of parties that are very obviously carefully chosen uh, and not parties that are not United Russia, that are not the ruling party, do on occasion win. You know, it's not totally unheard of. And so I think there's a certain kind of, you know, the, the elections are not sort of uh, rotten enough that, that, you, that, that they're sort of irrelevant. There's a, there are a great number of imperfections. There's a degree of sort of rigging in certain places. But it is a valuable uh, institution that shows us sort of where Russia is at, where the sort of the Russian people are, what they think. But also it's incredibly important, I think, for the narrow point of view of the political system that it's it's a legitimation exercise. You know, it's very important uh, for, for Putin, for the Kremlin, uh, that they should be seen to sort of uh, achieve strong electoral results. Putin's legitimacy does come from a sort of a, a, a quote-unquote democratic mandate, albeit a deeply imperfect one. And so I think it's important from, from, a, from a sort of legitimacy perspective. And that's... That's even more important now, of course, because we don't yet know what will happen in 2024 when Putin's next on the ballot. And it will be very important uh, in in going into a presidential election year where Putin may uh, run for office. Uh, He may not as well. That's not impossible. But the parliament should be a sort of a docile one, that it should be a sort of a carefully controlled one. That's very, very important from the point of view of the Kremlin. Uh, But also, I think if you're sort of talking from the perspective of, let's say, a prognosticator, the Duma will always be important because it's, it is institutionally very important, even if it's largely been hollowed out and it's not a practical seat of power anymore where it was in the past. And so, you know, if we were to 
one day wake up uh, with sort of no, you know, Putin, the Duma would be incredibly important in any, in any sort of hypothetical transition of power in Russia. So I think we have to pay attention to it as an institution and to its elections. So we're in kind of taking on that question, looking from the top down, maybe how Putin sees the elections, how international observers. Let's now kind of flip the script here and look at it from how Russians are seeing the elections. I guess most importantly, like what is educated or educating rather their current political views? What are the issues at play for them that may be determining how they're going to vote if they're going to vote at all? Mm-hmm. Well, so the if they're going to vote at all is a huge, uh, a huge question because you know the the dominant emotion, the dominant dynamic here, I think, is apathy and a sense of sort of uh, powerlessness on the part of the elector. I think there, you know, Russia has this sort of imitation democracy, which people do participate in, but you know, no one from the sort of the the individual voter to the sort of the member of, let's say, the Communist Party, particularly deludes themselves that the system is fair. Right? People know that the outcome is largely preordained, if not exactly, then the sort of broad outcome. But in terms of, you know, if we talk about the issues, I think uh, economics, especially this time around, is hugely important. You know, specifically things like inflation, like rising prices. You know, Putin personally has been talking about sort of rising food prices all year. You know, it it really has dominated. You know, his his sort of public facing speeches that he's been giving sort of in front of the people, quote unquote. I mean, and and I think that's that in many ways is a little bit of a defeat for the Kremlin because I think what they wanted to do was what they did in 2016, the last Duma election, which was essentially run it on like foreign policy, right? Run it, run an election based on sort of we are the guarantors of national sovereignty. So you see, if you look at the the the, the list of United Russia candidates, the top two candidates are Sergei Lavrov and Sergei Shoigu, the foreign minister and the defense minister, two very popular figures, you know, within the Russian uh, establishment, who are very much sort of people who speak to like geopolitics, you know, national security, these kind of anxieties. Um, but that's not proved to be what this election is about. You know, this election has been about bread and butter issues, economic issues, inflation, sliding incomes. Uh, but if anything, I think the single most important issue is actually one that happened three years ago, which is the pension reform, when there was um, uh, United Russia essentially raised the pen, or the, the government, I should say, raised the pension and age by a few years, the state pension age. And almost overnight, United Russia's polling basically halved, like it was an enormously controversial issue. And, you know, it is really why I think these elections and why politics over these last few years have been a bit fraught because this kind of material kind of bargain that the Kremlin has sort of struck with the Russian people, you know, the remnants of the Soviet welfare state, like this quite generous retirement age, were being chipped away and people were less willing to tolerate that, especially after sort of the glow of the, the Crimean annexation had worn off a bit. So I think, you know, these these this election in terms of issues has been really defined by the decline of foreign policy as a live issue and the rise of these domestic ones. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think that's true. It, just for context, I think that's true in a lot of countries. It's not just a uniquely Russian phenomenon where these, you know, high-level foreign policy issues that you know people in government spend so much time thinking about wind up ultimately mattering that much to to average people. So let's now take a step a little closer to the issue at hand. Zoom in. Um, so we have this universe of parties that are running political players. So I want to ask, I guess you could call it the Sesame Street question here. Who are the people in your neighborhood? Who who are competing in the election? What are the parties? Uh, what are they stands for? Do they really have meaningful platforms, given what you've mentioned about Russia's um, politics? 
also wanted to ask a little bit more about each of these parties, kind of their base of support, be that demographic, geographic. So let's start um, with the uh, supposed leader, or at least as far as the polling is concerned, but we'll talk about that in a bit. Um, let's start with United Russia. What is going on with United Russia? This is the the systemic party, uh, the party of party in power, kind of the Kremlin's party, quote unquote. What are they up to? Where do they stand? How are they doing? Yeah, I mean, United Russia, it's, it's you know, it's almost in many ways the least interesting of the lot because it is in the purest sense like a party of power. Like it's the party of the status quo. It's the party who is sort of definitionally is in power and it, it probably wouldn't exi exist if it wasn't in power. You know, in though, you know, we see in sort of regions of Russia where it actually loses power, it actually very swiftly sort of collapses almost and sort of people, you know, local power brokers will move to a new center of influence. So, I mean, it's, you know, it's broadly, I suppose, a right wing party, a center right party. Uh, but, you know, that is very, it's a very relative term because of the Russian political system being so odd, you know, certainly relative to the other parties, it is consistently probably the most sensible sounding party because it is not sort of, you know, it's not a communist party. It's not an ultra nationalist party. It's, you know, a party of sort of managers, a party of sort of administrators, a party of bureaucrats, you know, around election time, you'll get sort of more populist measures, you'll get things like, you know, uh, 10,000 rubles for teachers, you know, and 15,000 for soldiers, you know, and things like this. But, you know, ideologically, it, it, it's it's very much defined by the sort of the, the, the fashion in the Kremlin, I think, more than anything. Um, but, you know, it's it's the ruling party. It, 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 it will find it very difficult to lose. Um, you know, it, it's very unpopular at the moment. It's polling sort of uh, perhaps somewhere between 25 and 30 in most polls, which is pretty dismal, you know, considering this is a party that took 54% of the vote in 2016. It's the party of Vladimir Putin, but Vladimir Putin's personal popularity, which is very real, very genuine, and very broad, does not traditionally translate to United Russia, because United Russia is, you know, in the popular imagination, dominated and characterized by this sort of very unattractive cast of like, you know, lower level officials who are variously sort of corrupt, neglectful, abusive. And so, it does, you know, you don't you don't get uh, United Russia ever sort of performing to the level that Putin himself personally does, which is why every uh, a why Putin doesn't like to particularly associate himself with United Russia. But also when every sort of Duma election runs around, you find him going out on the stump because the party needs him and it relies on his sort of personal clout and personal popularity. So if United Russia had a political base. I know there's reputational issues right now. Um, who does vote for United Russia? Like, what would motivate someone to vote for this party specifically? And is there any particular geography to it? And I want to keep honing back in on the geography because I think it's worth noting, again, our angle here on the podcast that Russia is a real country and real countries have real political geography. So like, who is the kind of archetypal United Russia voter? Well, the archetypal United Russia voter is uh, a public sector worker or a retired public sector worker more generally because turnout is very low in Russian elections and turnout is very heavily slanted towards the retired and the elderly. Um, generally, United Russia, if we want to talk in geographical terms, is strongest in rural areas uh, and perhaps in sort of European Russia outside the big cities, we could say. Uh, it does very well in the south of Russia, you know, this kind of region, Krasnodar region, which is kind of booming, you know, these kind of very prosperous regions, maybe, you know, a handful of places um, that, that have really sort of benefited, you know, unambiguously from the Putin years, where life has sort of tangibly got better. But, you know, there's only so many much you can sort of read into it because it is, 
it is the dominant party. It will always get, it, it wins a majority in every given region. And, and, you know, when we talk about sort of where it's weak, where it's strong, you know, we're talking relatively. You could generally say United Russia is noticeably weaker in the big cities, uh, particularly in Moscow and to a lesser extent in St. Petersburg. It is also generally um, a little bit weaker in uh, the Far East. Uh, the Far East of Russia is a very sort of protest orientated region, not in like the Navalny sense, but in, in the sense towards the systemic parties, it, it, it leans quite strongly. Uh, United Russia also does extremely well in the sort of ethnic minority republics, so Tatarstan uh, and Bashkortostan on the Volga, and also the North Caucasian republics. You know, in Chechnya, it will get 98% of the vote on a 95% turnout, you know, something like that. But you know, naturally, as you might imagine, this is not because of authentic support. This is largely because sort of local sort of, you know, national ethnic elites in these regions have, have sort of understandings with the Kremlin that they get a degree of autonomy in return for providing for the political loyalty of their republics or so we, uh, so it seems. Uh, so these are the kind of places where Russia, where United Russia, Russia's sort of vote share, even if it's kind of lackluster nationally, will be propped up. You know, it will get these strong votes in places like Tuva, in places like Dagestan, in places like Tatarstan uh, again. Um, so in terms of geography, I think that, you know, if there's an opposition, so if there's an anti-United Russia area, it's very much Moscow and the Far East. So let's now turn to the second set of players, although I think it is worth uh, addressing them individually within this broader group. So we have the systemic opposition. And in the field, when we say that, we mean the quote unquote opposition parties that are essentially allowed to exist and play a political role by the Kremlin. And that would include the Communist Party of Russia, would include the Liberal Democratic Party of Russia, arguable whether it's liberal or democratic, but we'll get there. And a couple of other parties. There's a just Russia. There's a new one, uh, new people. Um, let's talk about this set of parties. I guess we'll start on the top level, the kind of broad mandate, like why they exist, what they exist for. Um, and then we'll talk about individually kind of the dynamics that may or may not separate them. Yeah, so from the point of view of the Kremlin, you know, uh, Russia is not a single party state. It has a bunch of sort of uh, opposition parties who are permitted to compete on an uneven electoral playing field. But they, you know, they could conceivably win elections. And, and some, on some levels they do. You know, they have a consistent representation in the state Duma, even though they, they almost by definition cannot be in the majority. They also sometimes win governor elections, especially since this pension reform that made United Russia very unpopular. And they're quite well represented at the local level. Um, you know, these parties... You know, there's a very popular sort of explanation of them, which is essentially that they're fake opposition. And I, I, I don't I don't really like that explanation because, you know, um, who's going to go into politics just because you're to, to basically professionally lose to United Russia? You know, people go in for their own reasons. And some of these people sort of have ideological convictions. Some of them want to have be in not public office because it's, you know, a nice way to earn a good living and sort of have the perks of office. But I think what marks these people out and what is why they're different from someone like Navalny is that they basically, to a greater or lesser extent, like are reconciled to the reality of a political system where Vladimir Putin is the main player and that United Russia, to a lesser extent, is the dominant party. And that in the for the foreseeable future, they they will not win the big the grand prize. They will not be the government. But they can they can have a role in the system and they can provide a voice for their certain ideals and they can, of course, you know use it as a comfortable <laughs> career sort of uh, trajectory as well. 
And so this is, I think, what that's the broad sort of logic, I think, of the systemic opposition. Now, you know, systemicness is kind of a, uh, a sort of a, a, a spectrum more than a sort of absolute term. Right. So I think the communists, the largest party, are clearly the least systemic of the main parties. They are the most independent. They're the most sort of uh, ideological. They're the most committed to a sort of an alternative vision of what Russia ought to be. Uh, and the other parties are substantially more sort of well, less committed, shall we say, to their own ideological visions and much more okay with basically a Putin-dominated political system. But, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a game of sort of, of ambiguities, I think. So starting with the communists, and I think is worth noting, does have a pretty significant political infrastructure. And again, I think your point that these are not fake parties really resonates, that the communists have the ability to turn out people, turn out protesters, uh, if need be. The question is always, you know, to what extent are they allowed to to do real opposition. Um, well, let's talk about, I mean, I think it's clear what they generally stand for. You can tell by the name, um, but who supports them? Where do they have their support? The stereotype of the Communist Party was always that it's like the party of the sort of the nostalgic uh, voter, the rural voter, maybe like the industrial worker in, you know, Chelyabinsk or something. But actually, I think that's a little, a little bit of flux right now, simply because that generation of people is obviously, you know, fading away. You know, there are fewer of those voters. And obviously, the communists are a party in long term decline. You know, in the 90s against Yeltsin, they made a very real uh, play for power. Uh, now they're a, sort of a party of between 10, 15, 20 percent, basically. You know, that's that's their ballpark. Um, but their electorate is kind of in flux because even though the party is dominated at the highest levels by people who are, you know, reflective of this kind of Soviet nostalgic uh, mindset, of this Soviet nostalgic sort of almost subculture, uh, a lot of their lower level de like officials, so like regional deputies and sort of regional Dumas are, are very radical, are often very sort of have certain links with like the Navalny movement, which is the, the non-systemic opposition, which is the one that sort of isn't considered legitimate by the Kremlin. Um, and then it, it's reflected in their voter base as well. So, you know, the communists in the 90s against Yeltsin always did very badly in Moscow because it was the most liberal sort of richest part of, 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 the, of the country. Uh, now the communists do very, very well in Moscow relative to the rest of the country because they are seen as the most real of the sort of tolerated opposition parties. And so if you're a sort of, you know, a, a Navalny supporter in Moscow who wants to sort of stick it to United Russia, then your most obvious bet is the Communist Party. You know, you're most likely to receive a sort of a credible, independent sort of, you know, uh, authentic opposition deputy by voting for the Communist Party. So the communists generally do very well in Moscow. Uh, they do quite well in St. Petersburg as well. They have a handful, perhaps, of these kind of old, like what we used to call the Red Belt strongholds. So, like you know, Ulyanovsk, where Lenin was born, is a is a big communist stronghold. Uh, Tolyaty, an industrial city on the Volga, a very big communist stronghold. But I mean, the communists, because you know, a, a certain stripe of the population that's really kind of nationwide does have these sort of like communist, you know, nostalgic beliefs. Almost anywhere, any given place in Russia, you can reliably get see them getting like ten percent. It's just in a few places they get a bit more than that. And yeah. We'll be right back after this short break. BNB Russia is meant for anyone who wants to understand what is going on in the world of politics and economics in one of the world's key emerging markets, or perhaps just wants to peek into the broader post-Soviet space. We're a team dedicated to making Russia and Eurasia more accessible, both to rising area experts and specialists, but also to those who don't know what Kvass is, have no strong opinions about Dill, and don't have any feelings about Moscow's macroeconomic policies. We're here to keep you ahead of the curve and spot what most in English language media aren't talking about. 
The BNB Russia project is led by FBI fellow and BNB editor in chief Stephanie Petrella, while our latest edition, BNB Ukraine, is led by FBI associate scholar Eilish Hart. To receive the latest on Russia and Ukraine news, be sure to sign up for BNB Russia at www.fpri.org/slash/subscribe. And now back to the discussion. Let's turn to the next player here, and I mentioned the Liberal Democratic Party. Uh, so, as I mentioned before, not necessarily liberal by any stretch of the imagination, and not particularly democratic either. Um, their leader is a bit of a firebrand, to say the very, very least. Tell us about them, kind of what the platform is and where they gain support. Yeah, so it's sort of like a, a, the, the Liberal Democratic Party is probably the most spectacularly misnamed party in sort of human history. You know, it's, it's you know, if, if one were to sort of apply a sort of easy ideological sort of descriptor to it, it would be sort of ultranationalist, far right, you know, sort of Russia for the ethnic Russians, you know, sort of against immigration for sort of, but also at the same time for sort of reconstructing the Soviet Union by sort of annexation, you know, sort of very, very up for sort of, you know, an aggressive foreign policy, at least in, at least in practice. Um, I think though, you know, and of course the leader, Vladimir Zhirinovsky is a sort of like, he's almost a sort of, he's a tried and tested sort of performance artist of politics. You know, he's, he's, uh, uh, he, he has quite an extraordinary sort of mannerism to him. He's, uh, charismatic in a sort of very strange and off-putting way but you know uh, you know obviously we are probably not his audience but he remains you know 30 years after his political debut like one of the most popular political figures in Russia you know like the communist leaders Uganda has a minimal public sort of following but you know in any given poll you'll consistently see like sort of Vladimir Zhirinovsky getting 10% of the population saying he's the most the person they trust most you know he's he's got a sort of a base and that's a base that I think is is sort of basically most understood as a sort of less as a sort of a, a party of sort of or a base of sort of far-right nationalism as a sort of like against all uh, section of the population you know um the party itself you know it's it, it's i think it's com it, it's it's problematic to say it's a sort of narrowly it's a, a fascist party or a far-right party because fundamentally it's a very incoherent party you know Zhirinovsky has a has a broad worldview, but he can also be for all kinds of strange things you know like that you can't really predict you know um he is in that sense his party is 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 probably mo of all the parties is most explicitly sort of about rents you know about sort of providing an opportunity to sort of extract rent from the system you know it's very famous for selling seats you know in the duma to sort of businessmen who want sort of let's say immunity from prosecution or lobbying rights and things like that um so you know it, it's hard to generalize about the ldpr at large you know it's 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 uh, by no means do all of the ldpr supporters sort of uh, subscribe to like the zhirinovsky philosophy in general, though, it does very well in the Far East. It is the it's basically the reason why the United Russia do very poorly in the Far East, or relatively poorly. Uh, of course, you know, two years ago or, or last year, actually, we had the, the story of Sergei Furgal, who was the governor of Khabarovsk, an LDPR guy, who was uh, you know jailed eventually, you know, on sort of uh, historic murder charges, and many sort of associated that with the idea that he'd been sort of um, you know uh, he'd upset United Russia where he shouldn't have done. Um, and, you know, this is very much the, the position of the LDPR, you know, a sort of like when people are angry, they vote for the LDPR. It's a sort of like a, a cry of sort of incoherent sort of screw the system anger, basically. So there are a couple other systemic parties. Just wanted to ask about them. We have um, Adjust Russia, a couple others. Are they meaningful players or are they more just to uh, add some spice to people's, you know, options when they go to the ballot box? 
Yeah, I mean, a just Russia is not insignificant. You know, it has something like 25 uh, deputies in the Duma. Um, but at the same time, like, it's a sort of, it's a very systemic party. You know, it's, it's, it, it was conceived as like the sort of the, the, the left-wing pro-Putin party as opposed to the right-wing pro-Putin party. Uh, it's, it's, it's never really worked. You know, it's, it's, it's dependent on a few people who have strong followings in their districts or in their local regions, you know, who will sort of get re-elected on its ticket. It has a very weak national identity. And, you know, I think certainly more recently, you know, the, the Kremlin has always been casting around for like a way to, to give it life. And, and what they sort of settled on is that they sort of got a guy called Zakhar Prilepin, who's a sort of an ultra-nationalist novelist involved, who's who's reinvented it in a sort of a way that, like, you know, we're economically on the left, we're sort of social democrats, uh, but also we're very hardline on, like, the Donbass issue and we're for sort of the annexation of the Donbass and this kind of thing. So it, it's a sort of, it's it's wound up today as a sort of left-nationalist party, you know, it's it, it's but it, it's certainly, I think, a less interesting player than the other two. Makes sense. Now let's turn our lens again to the non-systemic opposition, the opposition opposition. Now, Navalny's currently in jail. There's been efforts to essentially sideline any of this, well, it's not really a particular party, but sideline any of these uh, members of the movement uh, from having any meaningful role in politics, not even winning, but like running to begin with. So do we expect the non-systemic opposition to have any meaningful role in this election as far as garnering support, uh, even getting candidates onto the ballot? Where do they stand? And this could be a podcast episode in itself. It so. Could, yeah. yeah, so I'll, I'll try and be uh, concise. Um, basically, look, the, the, I think the thing to bear in mind here is the dividing line between the systemic and the non-systemic op systemic opposition is not absolute. Um, you know, there are a number of sort of people, you know, who ran uh, on the, the line of the Communist Party or uh, Yablaka, which is a sort of like very small, very old liberal party, which still has ballot access, uh, who were sort of identified as like non-systemic players and removed from the ballot. You know, we had a guy called Pavel Grudinian, who was the Communist Party candidate in 2018, who's been just banned from running because he's seen as excessively non-systemic, you know, excessively sort of prone to independence. Uh, if we talk, you know, about Navalny, now, again, like, it's it's really difficult because Navalny's whole sort of thing, this 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 this, this smart voting strategy, which is where he basically says, uh, in every in every sort of district, we will identify the sort of the, 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 the party, the candidate who is best placed to defeat United Russia. But of course, the only people who are allowed to run are the systemic opposition, you know, the communists, the LDPR and Adjust Russia. So, in air, so there's sort of the two have quite a tight interplay. You know, in the next few weeks, we'll see Navalny sort of or Navalny's team, of course, in exile. Uh, dropping these recommendations. Most of them will go to the communists because they're, as I say, the largest and the most independent party. But the, the two's kind of fate is intertwined, certainly because if the communists do well at this election, which seems quite likely because of the issue profile, you know, being about socioeconomic issues, which the communists do traditionally well on, the Navalny campaign will claim that as a victory. It, it, that may not be fair, but they, they will claim it as a victory. Um... If we talk like in narrow terms, sort of about the Navalny organization, it's it's very it's it's smashed. I think at the moment it's very insignificant. It's not a, a, a substantial economic like oh, sorry a, a substantial uh, electoral player on its own. It's you know their people are basically barred from running for office by by new anti extremism law, uh, and so their 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 influence on politics, or at least in electoral politics, is sort of it's it's vicarious. It's through the communists. It's through the, the LDPR in some cases, and so you know the two the two state really really hangs together. I think in this in this this month. 
So let's turn to our final topic now, which is what to expect. But I wanted to ask here. So I see kind of a dissonance in two current trends. So on one hand, you mentioned at the beginning that this election, if you're looking at the top down from kind of the Kremlin's perspective, is is about establishing a, a stable foundation for Putin to do whatever he decides to do in 2024. So winning stability, predictability, controllability, kind of eliminating the Duma, it sounds like as a variable that could meaningfully be unpredictable and impact Putin's decision making. On the other hand, and I think the Kremlin's well aware of this, United Russia is not particularly popular right now. People mm -hmm. are in pain and frustrated. They may be apathetic, but there's the economy in Russia has not done well since about Crimea hasn't really grown meaningfully, especially as far as uh, your disposable income and, you know, actual people's money. Um, so how is the Kremlin going to, I guess that's the million dollar question here. How does the Kremlin balance the need to demonstrate that the people are unhappy with the kind of countervailing need to make a predictable system? Yeah, so they need to be able to show that the system has the sort of the the the, the lack of the sort of the, the flexibility to display sort of dissent. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, well, one uh, response would be that they just don't do that because they rely to this point sort of on the strength of the security service, on the strength of repression. Of the, the sort of they, they've travelled so far away from the sort of the managed democracy as it was had in sort of the the two thousands that they just abandon the pretense of doing that in the first place and just rig the election spectacularly for United Russia. That's possible. You know, we have things like three-day voting and early voting and anecdotal evidence suggests that they are basically very convenient tools to rig elections um, in the Russian context, I should say. Um, on the other hand, I think that, you know, they've done such a good job, I think, of, of weeding out any potentially sort of unreliable figures from the candidate list, specifically of the Communist Party that they can probably allow the communists to gain maybe 10, 20, or even 30 seats, uh, because that would probably still leave United Russia with the vast bulk of seats. Even if, you know, United Russia is getting a quarter of the electorate to vote for it, you know, it will still benefit from things like rigging, uh, uh, you know, in, in certain areas of the country, Chechnya, we mentioned before, of course, it will benefit from what is called the administrative resource, which is basically the way uh, state employees are compelled one way or another to cast their ballots, usually for United Russia. It will benefit from overwhelmingly positive media coverage, which will get it the percentage it needs. You know, it will get that that percentage. And, and, and just for the record, the percentage it wants and the percentage it needs is what they call a, a constitutional majority, a two thirds majority of seats in the Duma. You can get that on like 40 percent of the vote. So, you know, in it's, it's very possible that they will achieve what they need in terms of control of the Duma on a substantially diminished vote share. And I think as long as that substantially diminished vote share didn't elect particularly radical figures, uh, that would be fine from the perspective of the Kremlin. I think, you know, there's an, there's an expectation that probably United Russia should be the lead party, but doesn't have to be the absolute hegemonic one, and it, its vote share can be allowed to oscillate, it has in the past. And so I think I think that's a, a fairly substantial, uh, a substantially uh, likely outcome. You know, a, a reduced vote share for United Russia, some loss of seats, but not not one that ultimately threatens its overwhelmingly dominant position in, in parliament. So you'd say that would be your prediction? Yeah, I think so. I think I don't think like there are any. I, I you know I obviously for the for my job I talk to a lot of sort of you know political scientists, political observers in Russia, and I. I can't think of anyone who has a, would seriously predict, you know, the baseline outcome as anything other than a, another, 
United Russia two thirds majority as a result of sort of you know rigging, as a result of being very careful about who they allowed to contest the ballot, and I think that's the baseline scenario. So there you have it, Felix. Thank you for joining us today. I'm glad glad to be here. Thanks again to Felix, and thanks to you, listener, for tuning in. Don't forget to follow BMB Russia and Eurasia at the Twitter handle at Bear Market Brief. BMB Russia and Eurasia is a project of the Foreign Policy Research Institute, that's FPRI, a nonpartisan think tank. For more information about this initiative and others, be sure to visit fpri.org. We'll catch you next time.